Last week, we began discussing the role of minhag in Psaq Halacha. Specifically, we noted that before we move to the issue of minhag qua minhag, of customs who derive their authority because they are customs, we talked about the sense in which practice can act as proof for accepting one interpretation of the halacha over another, both in terms of interpreting the primary sources as well as choosing which authority we should accept as the binding one. Another factor that we must discuss is the following. The sharp distinction that we draw between halacha and minhag, while it is natural uh, to us, um, that is partially because of the way in which many of us have been educated. I remember that I had a Rebbe when I was in high school who noted that while he studied the Mishnah Brura growing up, and therefore he was used to hearing the difference between Daraisa and Rabbanan, between biblical and rabbinic law, between minhag, um, and all the implications of that, when he spoke with his grandfather, his grandfather used to be frustrated by the Mishnah Bura because when he grew up, they learned the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. And the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, there is no distinction between Daraisa, Darabanan, Minhag, and the like. Um, rather, it just tells you what you are supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Um, and this short anecdote illustrates um, why, for many people, um, Minhag is so important, one, and two, while, why it is often hard to distinguish between Halakha and Minhag, though in the coming weeks we will try to do just that. Um, and that is the following. As we noted, Minhag sometimes means specifically those things which are binding because they are customary, but often is confused for what we called, based on uh, right, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik, nohag, simply what people do. And what people do includes both practice, both halacha and, and custom. And as, uh, as right, Dr. Soloveitchik has noted in his classic article, Rupture and Reconstruction, um, for much of Jewish history, most Jews um, were not necessarily um, learn it enough in text um, to fully understand the sources uh, for the law. And their primary access to what they were supposed to do was mimetic tradition, was the lived tradition that they received uh, from their parents. Now, while much of that article is devoted to why there's been a move towards Chumrah, that's not my focus uh, for the moment. But simply his insight which for much of Jewish history, people received their, uh, their tradition of how to keep halacha simply from practice, <coughs> um, that insight should highlight the fact that for many people, therefore, um, they did not, on a day-to-day -day basis, distinguish between the things that they were doing because they were biblical law, rabbinic law, custom, and the like. And therefore, it makes sense that at a certain level, there is a blurring of these lines between minhag and halacha, which is part of why, I believe, as we discussed last week, minhag has such an important role, not just in determining what we should do in cases where there are, there are binding minhagim, 
but in interpreting uh, the tradition. Because for many people, what they did was the only access that they had to um, to Jewish practice um, and halacha. And again, they did not distinguish between the various reasons why one might perform a particular Jewish uh, action. Now, Rabbi Dr. Soloveitchik there notes many of the reasons for the, the shift, among them the Holocaust and the destruction of, uh, of European Jewry, which cut off um, a generation um, from the lived tradition of their parents in many cases. Um, additionally, the move towards text culture uh, in general to a more academic uh, approach. Um, all of that influenced this move towards um, a literary tradition um, having a, a stronger role than the, uh, the mimetic tradition. Um, I would like to f- turn to a few paragraphs, though, that I think capture some of the ideas that we have outlined. He writes as follows. If I were asked to characterize in a phrase the change that religious Jewry has undergone in the past generation, I would say that it was the new and controlling role that the texts now play in the contemporary religious life. And in saying that, I opened myself to an, to an obvious question. What is new in this role? Has not traditional Jewish society always been regulated by the normative written word, the halacha? Have not scholars for well over a millennium poured over the Talmud and its code? codes to provide Jews with guidance in their daily round of observances? Is not Jewish religiosity proudly legalistic, and isn't exegesis its classic mode of expression? Was not their portable homeland, their indwelling in their sacred texts, what sustained the Jewish people throughout the long exile? The answer is, of course, yes. However, as the halacha is a sweepingly comprehensive regula of daily life covering not only uh, of daily life, covering not only prayer and divine service, but equally food, drinks, dress, sexual relations between man and wife, the rhythms of work and patterns of rest, it constitutes a way of life. And a way of life is not learned, but rather absorbed. Its, trans- its transmission is mimetic, imbibed from friend- parents and friends, and patterned on conduct regularly observed in home and street, synagogue and school. Do these mimetic norms, the culturally prescriptive, conform with the legal ones? The answer is, at times, yes. At times, no. And the significance of the no may best be brought home by an example with which we are all familiar, which, with which all are familiar, the kosher kitchen, with its rigid separation of milk and meat. Separate dishes, sinks, dish racks, towels, tablecloths, even separate cupboards. Actually, little of this has a basis in halakha. Strictly speaking, there is no need for separate sinks, for separate dish towels, or cupboards. In fact, if the food is served cold, there is no need for separate dishware altogether. The simple fact is that the traditional Jewish kitchen, transmitted from mother to daughter over generations, has been immeasurably and unrecognizably amplified beyond all halachic requirements. Its classic contours are the product not of legal exegesis, but of a housewife's religious intuition imparted in kitchen apprenticeship. An augmented tradition is one thing, a diminished one another. So the question arises, did this mimetic tradition have an acknowledged position even when it went against the written law? I say acknowledged because the question is not simply whether it continued in practice, though this too too is of significance, but whether it was accepted as legitimate. Was it even formally legitimized? Often yes. And once again, a concrete example best brings the matter home. There is an injunction against Borer, 
sorting or separating on Sabbath. And we indeed do refrain from sorting clothes, not to speak of separating actual wheat from chaff. However, we do eat fish, and eating fish we must, if we are not to choke, separate the bones from the meat. Yet in so doing, we are separating the chaff, bones, from the wheat, meat. The upshot is that all Jews who ate fish on on Sabbath, and Jews have been eating fish on Sabbath for at least some 2,000 years, have violated the Sabbath. This seems absurd, but the truth of the matter is that it is very difficult to provide a cogent justification for separating bones from fish. In the late 19th century, a scholar took up this problem and gave some very unpersuasive answers. It is difficult to imagine he was unaware of their inadequacies. Rather, his underlying assumption was that it was permissible. There must be some valid explanation for the practice, if not necessarily his. Otherwise, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of well-intending, observant Jews had inconceivably been desecrating the Sabbath for some 20 centuries. His attitude was neither unique nor novel. A similar disposition informs the multi-volume Aruch HaShulchan in the late 19th century reformulation of the Shulchan Aruch. Indeed, this indeed this was the classic Ashkenazic position for centuries, one which saw the practice of the people as an expression of halakhic truth. It is no exaggeration to say that the Ashkenazic community saw the law as manifesting itself in two forms. In the canonized written corpus, the Talmud and codes, codes and in the regnant pers- practices of the people. Custom was a correlative datum of the halakhic system, and on frequent occasion, the written word was reread in light of traditional behavior. This dual tradition of the intellectual and the mimetic, mimetic laws taught and laws practiced, which stretched back for centuries, began to break down in the twilight years of the author of the Aruch HaShulchan in the closing decades of the 19th century. This change is strikingly attested in the famous code of the next generation, the Mishnah Brura. This influential work reflects no such reflective justification of established practice, which is not to say that, it's, that it condemns received practice. Its author, the Chavetz Chaim, was hardly a revolutionary. And he continues. I know that we just read a particularly long quote, but I think it was necessary to highlight the point that we made last week, and that is, again, the following. For much of Jewish history, the average Jew was not text literate, and therefore his main exposure or her main exposure to Jewish life was from from his or her parents. And therefore, the distinction, as I said, between Daraisa and Darabanan, between Minhag and law, was often unclear. Um, And I think, as Dr. Soloveitchik notes, it is that insight that is part of the reason that we take practice so seriously even in w- when we determine halacha itself. And as he notes in his example, it is often difficult to justify the lived practice in light of text. However, if one is convinced that Jewish life is passed down from parent to child and that that mode of transmission is ideal, so then the way Jews practice Judaism must be a relevant data point when determining what the halacha is. And therefore, for much of Jewish history, and as he notes, and as we noted last week in Ashkenaz, this is particularly clear, both in the Rishonim and the Achronim. And in the modern period, the Archa Sholchan is a good example of a posseik who follows this type of approach. 
they will often look towards minhag, again, not in the formal sense, meaning minhag, which is not halacha, but rather nohag. Look at the lived practice of Jewish people to provide evidence of how the halacha should indeed be interpreted. Or as he, as Rai Salvechik writes, how the written word should be reread in light of traditional behavior. However, he notes that different poskim will weigh nohag, will weigh practice in with different uh, with different weight. And while the Aruch HaSholchan is a good example of a posseik that gives it much weight and is more willing to reinterpret the text, the primary sources, and the previous authorities in light of traditional behavior, many other poskim are less willing. And the Mishnah Brura is a good example of that, where the Mishnah Brura is much more focused on both weighing his original interpretation of the text, which he often does in the Bir Halacha, and weighing the consensus of previous authorities, which he does in the Mishnah Brura, focusing, in both cases, on written literature rather than on lived practice. And he's much less likely to reinterpret the tradition, meaning the text tradition, in light of the lived tradition than the Posaic, like the Aruch HaSholchan. Um, and Rabbi Dr. Salvechik goes so far as to say that common practice in the Mishnah Bura has lost its independent status and needs to be squared with the written word. Where the Mishnah Bura's tendency is to downplay the importance of the data point of lived practice and to upgrade the other two foci, that of the interpretation of the canonical texts, and the weight of the previous interpreters of the tradition. And therefore, I think it is important to note that while I don't think any posik would deny the importance of minhag or practice, um, when it comes to actually determining halacha, one will have a wide range. An older poskim um, often will uh, will have a greater um, deference for a minhag as a data point, whereas many 20th century poskim will focus more on the two text traditions, the canonical sources, and uh, the previous um, poskim who've interpreted the halacha. Um, now, obviously, that is just a, a generalization, as, uh, as Rabbi Dr. Soloveitchik uh, presents it, um, and even in the modern period, one can find poskim um, on both sides. Um, for example, Hasidish poskim, um, the, the Nite Gavriel being a good example, um, are much more influenced by, uh, by minhag and will reinterpret the, uh, the sources to defend the minhag. Whereas opposed to poskim, um, let's say, uh, Ramosha Feinstein, were much less likely uh, to do that. But again, what becomes clear from this presentation is that part of the justification for those poskim who do take lived tradition so um, as such an important factor in determining what the sources mean 
The rationale for that is simply that for many, many, many generations, in fact, for most of Jewish history, the primary access that a Jew would have to the tradition of the Torah was through this lived tradition. And that insight um, blurs the line between text and tradition, between halacha and practice, between theoretical law and lived uh, lived practice for the halacha, which is part of the justification for using practice of the law as such an important data point in formulating the halacha. A second general point that we should make before in the coming weeks we turn to specific types of minhagim is the following. The Maratzchios, in his Darkeho Ra'ah, has an analysis of Minhagim. And he outlines all the different types of customs um, that we have. And he notes that, that there are Minhagim Shomabikach, things which are not related to Halacha at all, Lol Isotera, not to biblical law, not to Isotera Dirabanan. And then he lists uh, examples. Um, there are minhagim, he notes, which prohibit things. There are minhagim in shuls. There are all types of customs. And he says, why are all these minhagim important? And again, here, here Marzius again is asking a general question. He notes that halachically, there's a difference between Minhagim that have no basis, that are neither Lisur nor Lehater. And then there are Minhagim which have halachic basis, and there are Minhagim that are binding on certain communities, and Minhagim that are binding on everyone. And he has this full analysis, and we will return to these details in the coming weeks. But he asks the general question, which is, why do I care about this category at all? So we've given one part of the answer in the first half of this year. The second answer that we'll give from Narthias, which is related to the first, sharpens what we've been saying. And he writes as follows. Da, ki achenu b'nei Yisrael mitsuyanim hayom b'in ha'amim al shnei panim shonim. Echad mitzam shem ba'alei da'at miyuchad, v'nifradim b'sharshe amuna mishaharei ba'alei ha'dat, v'o nivdilu shahayu said, know that the Jews are distinguished from the nations around them in two ways. One is that they have a different religion, meaning they are divided with their tenets of faith from other religions. And two is their difference in terms of culture, language, practice, custom, and the like. Um, and he writes, the continuation is following. He says, look, when we lived in Israel as a separate nation, not in Galut, so we were both a religion and a nation with all the trappings of a nation, language and culture and political institutions and the like. However, in Galut, 
we're still a separate religion. And what it means for Judaism to be a separate religion is clear. So we keep the Torah because we are a different religion. However, we know when Jews were in Galut, they didn't have the trappings of a nation. So in what sense were they a people and not just a religion? So he argues that here, that large piece, to summarize it outside, is as follows. He says, now that we are in Gal- when we Jews were in Galut, we also had to maintain peoplehood. Now this was complicated because we were also part of other nations and we had to feel their pain and be good citizens and the like. But we also wanted to maintain Jewish peoplehood. And to do that, we needed certain cultural markers, language um, and the like, which is why it was important to at least maintain Hebrew, maintain Lashon HaKodesh as a, uh, as a whole, as a as a liturgical language, um, and the like. Um, and he continues to write um, that custom was part of this separate, this second factor. That the emphasis on custom is what connects people emotionally to Judaism, to Jewish peoplehood, um, and through that or part of that, to Jewish religion. As he writes, Mitzvot, formal halacha, is what keeps the purity of the religion. But customs, which were done in public, which are done in shul, which is when we get together as a community, which are done at life cycle events, which are done on holidays. They're what keep us together as a nation, the externalities, as a remnant of what it'll be when we actually have peoplehood back in the land of Israel, which, thank God, we've seen started to rebuild in the, in, since the, the modern state of Israel. And he says, these customs are like the salt that sustains the meat, that shouldn't rot after the passage of time. And therefore he says, the following, he says, let's say you think that a minhag is meaningless. 
still. Then you cannot be lenient in them. Or to just, and to destroy it. You cannot challenge these minhagim because they are what keep our peoplehood and going against them will destroy it. And since they are and since they have struck a place in people's hearts since they were children, it is very hard to separate people from what they are used to doing. And he says, if you weaken their commitment to minhag, you will also weaken their Commitment to halacha itself. And therefore, in the continuation of the piece, he suggests that if there are minhagim, like a non-halachic minhagim, that you that are not anti-halachic, but are just meaningless, so it would be detrimental to challenge them. If they die by themselves, so that's fine. He suggests not trying to bring them back and revive uh, such minhagim, but to actively challenge them is to weaken people's commitment uh, to Judaism. And let us just, again, summarize his argument and then bring it back to our point. He argues as follows. Minhag. Now here, again, he's talking about minhagim, which are only binding in terms of the fact that they are minhag. And he notes that the reason they are important is because they help build Jewish peoplehood, even when Jews may not be in Eretz Yisrael, with all the trappings of statehood. They give us a culture, and hence, things like language, life cycle event customs, events, um, customs that we have in shul or on holidays, when people are together, they're important because they keep people committed to Jewish identity. And that's part of what keeps us as Jews. And therefore, again, he argues that even minhagim, which are not halachically important, should be kept and maintained, or at least not challenged, because they are what help keep people committed to halacha. But I want to just borrow his argument for what we've been talking about this week and last week, which is why it is that minhag, or lived practice, is so important in determining halacha. And again, this is not how he's using it in this piece, but I think the insight is still true. And that is the following. Because people's commitment to Torah is so much about the way they live Judaism, especially when they live Judaism the way they've experienced it growing up with their family and the like. It's not only that there's a belief, as we've talked about, that the memetic tradition must point to the truth of that tradition, or at least suggest that there must be a way to defend that tradition um, based on our analysis of the primary texts of halacha and our survey of, uh, of previous authorities' positions on the halacha. 
It's also that every time we challenge the legitimacy of the way Jews practice, it threatens to weaken their commitment to Judaism as a whole. Now again, if in fact it is against halacha, so sometimes we have to challenge minhag. But I think one of the reasons that poskim are so hesitant to cavalierly challenge the lived practice of Jews when determining what the halacha halacha should be is because every time we contend that we should change lived practice of halacha, even if it is correct, it runs the risk of weakening their commitment to the halachic system. Because now, part of the way they've lived in Torah has been called into question. Its legitimacy has been challenged. And therefore, I think the second reason that poskim take it so seriously, um, what people have done when determining the halacha is, is because the cost of challenging the status quo, challenging the way people act, is that you weaken their commitment to the Judaism that they know. And again, since most people, at least for most of history, were not text-savvy enough to know the difference between Daraisa, Darabanan, and Minhag, anytime you challenged the way they lived Judaism, you ran the risk of of weakening uh, this commitment. Now again, this doesn't mean that it's never legitimate to challenge it. It doesn't mean that it's not legitimate to use the emphasis on the other two factors of Psak to challenge the way people live Judaism, to challenge a minhag in all the ways it is understood. But if one wants to understand why Poskim take custom as a data point that at least must be taken into consideration when examining the primary sources and determining what the halacha is, one keep, must keep in mind the two points that we've outlined today. One is that for much of Jewish history, the Torah was passed on mimetically, and therefore there wasn't such a distinction between halacha, at least in the lived experience of Jews, between halacha and minhag. And therefore, that blurring of the lines makes practice so important when determining what the halacha should be. And point two is that the way people act and the way they've experienced Judaism as part of the community is what connects them, not just to Judaism as a religion, but Judaism to peoplehood, which is part of what keeps them committed to Judaism in both its respects. And every time you challenge a minhag, even if it's legitimate, you run the risk of weakening their commitment to the totality of what it means to be Jewish. And while it may be legitimate to do that under certain circumstances, and may be necessary, poskim, if they don't have to, would rather not run that risk. And therefore, for those two reasons, I think, poskim gives so much weight to minhag when trying to determine what the halacha is though, as we noted at the beginning, minhag doesn't get a final say. One must still weigh it in light of the other two factors in terms of understanding the primary sources and seeing what other poskim have said. And as we've noted, different poskim in different generations will give different amounts of weight to minhag versus text. But the fact that it has some weight and some importance 
is undeniable for the reasons that we outlined both last week and this week. In the coming weeks, we will turn now to the specific types of minhagim one can have. Minhag avot, family minhagim, minhag eidah, minhag hamakom, uh, and the like. But that is what we will turn to in, uh, in coming weeks.